Good morning and Happy New Year to everyone. We praise God for his kindness to us in allowing us to enter 2021. Many of you know that I work as a hospice chaplain providing spiritual support for patients who are at the end of life. And like many of you who work for a boss or an employee or a company, I represent my employer. So when I'm out making visits uh, to my patients' homes or when I'm out at skilled nursing facilities, my actions uh, are very important because they will have an impact not only on my patients but also on my employer. And one of my duties during this pandemic that started last year has been to get routinely tested for the coronavirus. That's whether I'm showing symptoms or not. I have to get tested and provide negative results in order to be approved to make visits to my patients. This past year, I have been tested many, many times, and I have experienced three different kinds of COVID tests. One has been a saliva test where I've been given a cup and I've spit in it, and they've sent that to the lab, and a couple of days later, they say, hey, here are your results. I've also experienced another kind of test, which is a mouth swab, where uh, I've either pulled into a facility or a nurse has come to me and they've given me a, like a Q-tip and they've made me swipe my palate or my inner cheeks. And then I've also experienced a third kind of test, which is a nose swab. This is where a nurse inserts the swab in my nose and the time that the only time that I've gotten it done has made me feel like she actually went all the way into my brain and swabbed that as well. Very uncomfortable. Very, very uncomfortable. And you know, all of these experiences have been time-consuming. They've been uncomfortable. They've even been painful. And I've had to learn to embrace them as a blessing. Because these tests and the results have given me the confidence that I am well. That I am healthy. And I'm not a danger to be around. It has also provided me with assurance that I am okay and, and healthy enough to go and visit my patients to fulfill my responsibilities, which is to provide care for them. Well, this morning we revisit the Epistle of James and we start a new series that will go on throughout the year, if the Lord wills. And we'll see that this epistle is a very practical epistle. And it helps us to know more about who God is and about how we are called to live as God's servants. This is important to understand because if you're a Christian, you must know who God is and you must know how to respond according to your identity and according to the new citizenship that you've been given because you and I no longer belong to the kingdom of this world. You and I belong to a kingdom that is under the reign of Lord Jesus. And as such, we are no longer our own. We now don't have the 
luxury of responding like old Oscar used to respond before Oscar was saved. We now are called to live under our Lord Jesus and the way that he calls us to live. This requires living by a code of conduct that is distinct to the, to the one that non-believers live by. And it is evidenced by a different lifestyle and a quality of character than those who are not members of Christ's kingdom. The epistle of James teaches us that the Christian life is about more than just claiming to have faith. James is concerned about faith being put into action. James' letter will show us that correct beliefs about God ought to show themselves in correct behavior. James then writes that this letter is a letter that exhorts God's people to live in a distinct, distinctive way. Now, our passage for today, I know your bulletins say James 1, 1 through 12, but we're actually going to just cover the first four verses, James 1 through 4. So if you want to open your Bibles with me and follow along, I'm going to be reading James 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here we come to an epistle that is very similar to the email format or the emails that we are accustomed to today. In this epistle, in verse 1, we find all of the information that tells us um, what this epistle is about. Here we find the identity of the author or the sender, the recipient, a subject, a greeting, and then in the rest of the epistle we find a call to action. First, we find the author. Verse 1 begins by telling us that this is James, that James is the author of this letter. While this is helpful, there appears to be at least three men in the New Testament that bear this name, James. One of the James that we read about in the New Testament happens to be James, the son of Zebedee, a brother of John, who Jesus referred to as the sons of thunder. You might remember these brothers from an occasion where uh, they asked Jesus if he wanted them to call fire to fall from heaven on a Samaritan village because they had rejected Jesus. James and John, these two brothers, were two of Jesus' closest friends, and they were part of the inner circle along with Peter. But it's unlikely that this is the James that the author um, is identifying here because this James was killed by Herod early on in the life of the church. And you can read about that in Acts 12. We'll, we'll get there when, when Jeremy um, gets to that chapter. 
The second James that we read of uh, is James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also known as James the Less, which could mean James the Young, the Young James or Little James. And we aren't told too much about this James, but he never reached a prominent position within the church, and it's less likely that he was the author of this epistle. Now, the third option that we have is the half-brother of Jesus. And as we learned in our time in the book of Jude about a year ago, this James is also the brother of Jude, because Jude identifies himself as a half-brother of Jesus. So this James is a James that we read of in the Gospels, and we find that James was an unbeliever during Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, James doubted who Jesus claimed to be. And it's most likely that he became a follower of Christ after his resurrection. This James became the leader of the Jerusalem church, and you can read about that in James 12 as well. And during the time of this letter, most people would have known that by hearing James, they would have known who it was referring to, that it was the brother of Jesus and the elder at the Jerusalem church. So this is the James who is the author of the letter. So the letter begins by saying, James, now that we've identified the author, notice how James describes himself. He calls himself a servant, a word that could also carry the meaning of a slave. This word carries the understanding that James was someone who belonged to another. And the word slave oftentimes carries the negative connotation that our culture understands the word to have. But that's not how uh, James saw himself as. James saw himself as a slave. And this was a privilege for him because he was identifying himself as someone who belonged to God. And I believe that this description tells us more about James and the perspective that he had on life. Because James could have easily said, James, the half-brother of Jesus. But he didn't. And we know that James didn't have a problem using the word brother because throughout the letter he addresses other Christians as brothers and sisters. So he could have easily said, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus, but he doesn't. Rather, he identifies himself as a servant, as a slave. So James says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like James, we ought to recognize and embrace the privilege that we have been given as servants of God. We were once enemies of God, but the Lord in his kindness has made us a part of his family, and we now belong to him. And therefore, we are called to live our lives as he calls us to do so, in a way that's pleasing and acceptable to him. And we do this by trusting him and obeying his words. Next, we find the recipients of the letter. James identifies his audience as to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The word dispersion is a word that means to sow or to scatter abroad. 
And in the Old Testament, we find the, the Israel's history and we learn that the Jewish people were conquered and exiled at different times and scattered throughout many places. And by the time of the New Testament, there were many Jews who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The scattering used then in the New Testament appears to be used to identify Jewish Christians rather than just the Jewish ethnic people of Israel. And you can read more about this in Acts chapter 8, Acts 11. And once again, when we get there, uh, we'll learn more about that. So James addresses Jewish Christians who are followers of Christ that were scattered outside of their homeland due to persecution. And in verse 1, we find important details that set the tone for the letter. This is true of all introductions in the epistles in the New Testament. It's important to not just skim through the first couple of verses and then try to get to the body of the letter. We want to take time to understand the introduction because it will set the tone for what the letter is about. Just as an email preview on your phone or laptop helps you understand how important an email is, whether you should open it and read it right then and there, or whether you can snooze it and read it later, so these introductions and these greetings help us to understand what the epistle is about. This intro then sets up the epistle, informing us that James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing this letter to fellow brothers and sisters who are also servants of the Lord. And he exhorts them, he exhorts us to conduct ourselves in God-glorifying ways while we find ourselves scattered in foreign lands. Now we come to the first theme that James addresses in his letter. The theme is trials in the Christian life, trials in the Christian life. And if you're taking notes, our main point comes in the form of a question and an answer. The question is, how are Christians to respond to trials? How are Christians to respond to trials? And our text provides two ways that Christians ought to respond to trials. The first is that Christians ought to respond to trials with joy. With joy. We read that in verse 2. One of the things that I enjoy about my job as a chaplain is that I get to meet various and uh, different kinds of, uh, of people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different faiths. And part of meeting different people and providing care to them has allowed me the the opportunity to be present in seeing how people respond to their trials and their suffering. And I found it interesting that many people are surprised when suffering knocks on their door, when they are met by suffering. And I've concluded that their surprise is oftentimes due to their understanding or misunderstanding of who God is, and the nature of trials or suffering. That's why I believe that it's important to understand the nature of suffering and trials since it's a part of our experience as humans that live in a fallen world. 
The Bible shows us, teaches us that trials and suffering are results of sin that have entered the world when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. You can read all about that in Genesis 3. Wherever we find pain and wherever we find heartache, we have to remember that sin is at its root. Because God designed our bodies and God designed this world as good and perfect. The world wasn't, uh, wasn't created fallen. The world wasn't created for us to experience pain and suffering. This is not normal, although many people think that suffering is part of, um, it is normal in life. The reality is that it's not because that's not how God created us to live. Suffering and trials come as a result of sin. The Apostle Paul explains that when sin entered the world, it didn't enter solo. Instead, it brought death along with it. You read, that about, you read about that in Romans 5. And since then, sin has been destroying God's good creation and distorting the, 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 light, the way that life was intended to be lived. And this is important to know because if we get this wrong, we will find ourselves questioning and even blaming God for things that He's not responsible for. So we have to keep this in mind when you come alongside someone who is struggling to understand their suffering and are giving in to the temptation to blame God. When you come across folks that are, 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 are struggling in this way, you have an opportunity to guide them to a right understanding of the reason for suffering. And you have an opportunity to share the hope that we have in Christ of forgiveness, of sin and acceptance in a new world that he has promised without the effects of sin and without suffering, where God himself will wipe away every tear, where he himself will be present with us and we will be his people and he will be our God and Trials and suffering will exist no more. Tragically, a misunderstanding, misunderstanding of suffering is something that has also crept into the church as well. There are false teachings about trials and suffering that tell people that they need to reject any and all suffering because the proponents of these teachings teach that Jesus suffered so that Christians wouldn't have to. And on top of this, those that teach this call people to respond with positive thinking because they say that this is how one ought to respond to suffering. They say that one only has to change their thinking or what one believes because if one doesn't, then your negative feelings will manifest itself in real life and thus determine the circumstances of your life. Again, they say that you have to just declare that you don't accept it and change your thoughts and this will resolve your problem. And if you do those things, but your circumstances don't change, they say then that the problem lies with you because then it means that you don't have enough faith. But is this really what the Bible teaches about how Christians ought to respond to trials? 
Is this what the gospel empowers us to do, to manifest a more desirable situation by changing our mentality or declaring things into existence? No. Listen to the first thing that James writes about, about how we ought to respond. He says that we ought to respond to trials with joy. We find this in verse 2, where he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. At first, this might sound a little absurd. You may be asking or wondering, how do joy and trials fit together in the same sentence? Because trials, from my experience, can be painful. They can be agonizing. They can be hurtful. They can cause us to lose sleep. They can affect our health, leading to many tears and suffering. So how can our response be joy when our natural tendency is to become anxious or angry or to grumble, to complain or to even question God's goodness? Well, the answer to this question is found in understanding what James means by counting it all joy. When we think of joy, we often think of emotions of happiness and laughter and delight. And while joy can include these responses, it's not limited to just that. If it's not just an emotion then, then what is it? The joy that is referred to here is a conscious decision to respond to our external circumstances with an internal contentment in God because we trust that He is at work in our lives. I'm going to repeat that again. The joy that we find here is a joy that refers to a decision that's made in our mind to respond to our circumstances that we are experiencing externally with an internal contentment, choosing to believe and trust in God that He is at work in our lives. In other words, it's not primarily referring to our emotions, but rather to our decision to trust God. This means that Christians not only look at their circumstance, but they look beyond their current circumstance. And instead, they look to God who is at work in their lives for their good. So the trial in itself is not a cause, it is not what causes the happiness. Also, the call to have joy does not exclude feelings of sadness or pain. We don't have to pretend or we don't have to wish our suffering away. Instead, the trial serves as a means to look to Jesus, the one who entered into our experience and endured suffering and persecution and even execution for us. The Christian can look to the cross of Christ and be reminded that Jesus cares about our suffering and our pain, so much so that he came and entered into our experience to put an end to it, to save us from the effects of sin. When we understand this, we begin to make sense of the exhortation to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. 
But how do we come to the conclusion that the, that the joy that's referred to here is a mindset? Well, first, notice that James' exhortation is, is to Christians. He writes, my brothers, in verse 2. This helps us understand that only Christians have the capacity to look at their circumstances rightly and interpret them correctly through the word of God. This is because spiritual matters are discerned spiritually. And Christians have been given the spirit of God to understand the word of God. An unbeliever is unable to do this because they don't trust nor honor God. Not, and they can't understand fully the deep truths of God. So if you're visiting us today and you are not a Christian, we're, we're, we're glad that you're here with us. And we're glad that you're able to listen to what God has to say about trials and suffering. And if you're struggling to understand suffering, we want you to know that only the Christian understanding of God and suffering can consistently make sense of your experience. The God of the Bible offers you the antidote to your greatest problem, which is sin. And he does this by calling you to repent of your sins and to turn to him in the person of his son, Jesus. And it is through him that you can come to understand your greatest problem and your greatest need, and you can find the solution to it, which God freely offers. And so if you have any questions, please feel free to ask myself or whoever you came with, and we'd be more than happy to tell you more about this. But the second thing that we have to notice here in verse 2 is that, and 3 is that James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In this verse, James implies that our response has to do with our mind rather than our emotions and the reactions that we have. So we have to choose to make a conscious decision to decide to respond to our circumstances by trusting in God. Because, they, because trials serve a, serve a purpose of strengthening us in Christ. We can choose to respond with joy because when we know that our trials are not meaningless, they serve a purpose, we can trust that the Lord is at work through them for our good. One of the many blessings of the gospel is that Christ has come into our world to save us from our sin and the coming judgment. This is great news because we were all guilty and we were all deserving of God's wrath. But praise be to God that he willingly and joyfully set his face towards the cross and he tackled it head on for our good and his glory. And this is what Paul says in Romans 8. He says that if you are a Christian, there is now no condemnation for us. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. We must let that sink in because if there is no condemnation for us in Christ, then our trials are not God's retribution to us for wrongdoing or for sin. Our trials 
can be seen as good gifts from our good heavenly father who uses the trials for a specific purpose, which we will get to. Another question that, that, that may come up is why must God use trials? Why must, why can't God just help me grow through a Bible study or through coffee with uh, having a conversation with another believer? Well, verse 3 shows us that trials serve as a means to test our faith and as a means to produce steadfastness. We read that in verse 3. Now, why would God need to test our faith? Isn't God all-knowing? Doesn't God know everything already? Well, the answer is yes, He does. God has revealed Himself to be omniscient, a God who knows everything. So if God knows everything, then maybe the testing of faith is not for God. Maybe it's for us. In regards to this, an awesome biblical counselor, his name is David Paulison, wrote in his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering, that a Christian's suffering reveals the genuineness of faith in Christ. And suffering produces genuine faith. It both reveals and forms faith. This is awesome. This helps us understand the experiences that we all go through. This is encouraging news, especially if you ever ask yourself the question, how do I know that I'm saved? A topic that will come up in chapter 2. Well, this passage helps us find an answer. We've learned that trials are to be expected in life. We've also learned that we are to respond with joy when we meet trials because it serves as an opportunity to reveal the genuineness of our faith in God. Well, God uses trials to prove that we are His, but also to produce steadfastness or endurance in us. This is exactly what we need in this world. In a world that works so hard to distract us and to disable us spiritually, we need endurance, and God knows exactly how to produce it in us. Endurance is the quality of firmness that enables us to remain grounded no matter what comes our way. As we encounter trials in our lives, the Lord works spiritual stamina in us so that we would remain firm no matter what Satan or the world or the flesh throw at us. This is why we ought to not grumble nor complain when we find ourselves in trials. Instead, we ought to see the trials for what they are and decide to trust God because He is not punishing us, but He is working through the trial for our good. Remember the example of me having to get tested. Every time I've gotten tested, I have received the negative COVID result. And that COVID result, that negative COVID result has shown me that I'm okay. And I'm then encouraged to continue going out to visit my patients and thus fulfill my duty. So the testing of faith serves the purpose of revealing 
our value of proving that we are His and thus builds firmness and encouragement to keep us moving forward in His service. And as we experience trials in life, they continue to strengthen our faith and keep us spiritually grounded. This is why we can count it all joy when we encounter trials in life because God is using the difficult circumstance to mature us. Well, if that's the first response that we ought to have to joy, then the second response is that Christians ought to respond to trials by receiving and not rejecting trials. We ought to receive them and not reject them. We see this second exhortation in verse 4. Not only are we to count it all joy, but we're also to cooperate with the work that God is doing by receiving these encounters. James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, this goes against the whole let go and let God mentality that, oh, I can just kind of chill and not do anything, not discipline myself for godliness. God's going to do everything. But no, James here is telling us that we play a role in our sanctification, in the way that God matures us. We are called to participate and cooperate as well. Can you imagine what would happen if I had an appointment for a COVID test and upon my arrival, I resisted it? What would happen if when I arrived, the nurse comes, took my car window, and I closed my mouth? turn my face or if I just decided not to open my window and just drove home not only would I be rejecting something that is meant for my good but my showing up to the test site would not benefit me at all then if I got called to visit a family or one of my patients I would be lacking the confidence and would be doubting whether I should go or not. And I'd be going back and forth because I'd wonder, oh no, what if I, I am positive and what if I get them sick? And if I get them sick, then I'm going to be responsible for them. And then I'm unfit for my calling. Similarly, if we are to be servants of God who are acceptable and honoring to Him, we must cooperate with God by allowing Him to mature us through the trials that produce endurance. Now I invite you to think about and remember our Lord Jesus, who was a man of endurance. You know, sometimes we think, if you've watched Iron, Iron Man, any one of his movies, you see how the villains, they, 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 they give their best shot to try to, you know, get rid of Iron Man and they fire missiles and bombs and throw tanks on him and, you know, through the rubble and through the fire and the smoke, you see Iron Man standing up without a scratch, right? And you think, whoa, that's cool. Well, that's fantasy. We actually have a real person that we can look to who really is worth admiring and honoring and worshiping, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man of endurance. He is someone who we ought to want to be like. Jesus is someone who was tested in every way. He was mocked. 
He was ridiculed. He was spit on. He was beaten. He was humiliated. And yet he did not retaliate. Some of us, well, me, when I drive and I get cut off, oh, it's so hard not to retaliate. It's so hard not to drive next to them and look over and say, what are you doing? How do we resist that? How do we learn to be like Jesus and turn the other cheek and walk the second mile and give our tunic and our sneakers? Well, it's through the endurance that we get through trials. You see, oftentimes we think that it's just easy, right? That we will be more like Jesus without having to suffer without having to go through difficulties, but it doesn't work that way. To be like our Lord, to be like our master, we must follow in his footsteps and learn obedience as he did through our suffering. And it is through trials that the Lord works endurance in us so that we would be more like him. And in doing so, we glorify God. Jesus is the one who is mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. And in trials, God works endurance in us so that we would be more like Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, without endurance in our lives, we won't be perfect and we won't be complete in our sanctification. We will remain incomplete and spiritually immature. Trials in the Christian life should cause a deeper trust in God because we understand that God uses trials for our good. Christ was made perfect through his suffering and learned patient obedience by his suffering, according to Hebrews. This is the pattern that he has set for us and we ought to follow in his footsteps. Now, I just want to make a few more observations from some of the details in the text to encourage us to apply what we've learned. Regarding trials, notice that trials can take many shapes or forms. You see that in verse 2. It says that we ought to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. So it might not just be uh, one thing, it might be another. It may be that you or a loved one may contract the coronavirus. It may be that you lose your job unexpectedly. A trial may even come from the losing of a loved one. Brothers and sisters, maybe you have or are currently undergoing a trial. I wonder if your response is one where you are determined to receive it as a blessing from God because you know that it will serve as a means to mature you and to glorify Him. I wonder what your prayers are like in the midst of your trials. I wonder if our prayers are prayers that pray for the Lord's will to be done and for Him to continue to sustain us so that the work that He's doing in us through the present trial would come to completion 
Or I wonder if our prayer is, Lord, get me out of here. I don't want to go through this. No. Do you have a category in your mind that enables you to prepare for trials that will show up someday in your life? Because James says that we ought to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. This implies that it will happen. Is this something that you are preparing for? Or are you hoping and praying that a trial never shows up on your doorstep? In conclusion, we have been bought at a price. We are no longer our own. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who willingly and joyfully laid his life down for us. And we are now called to lay our life down for him and to walk through the path that he calls us through, which will include suffering. But in the midst of that, we have hope. We have hope that our suffering is not meaningless or pointless. Our suffering serves a purpose, and that purpose is a reason for us to rejoice because it is a means that will mature us and that will bring God glory. So when you find yourselves in trials, remember to respond with joy and to not reject the trial, but accept the trial. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are a good Father. We thank you that you use your wisdom and your power and your knowledge and your love and your kindness to work together all things for our good. We thank you that there is nothing pending in terms of judgment or wrath for us because your son, Jesus, took it upon himself and paid for every last debt that we had. And so we thank you, Lord, that you look upon us with love and that you desire for us to be like Christ, that we would be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. We pray, Father, that you would help us, that you would help us to adopt this mindset, that we would be people who give ourselves to rejoicing in trials because we will become more like our Lord and Savior through them and thus become more effective in our callings. Lord, I pray that if any one of us here is going through trials and is running out of hope or strength, Lord, I pray that you would sustain my brothers and my sisters. I pray that you would remind them by your word and your spirit that you do not mean their situation to harm them, but to do good to them because you love them and you love us. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that as we look at the cross, we are reminded of the great love that you have for us. We pray that we would never forget that you loved us even to the point of death on a cross. So help us to respond correctly. Help us to live in such a way that would be pleasing to you and honoring to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.